0: Welcome to Builder Funnel Radio. If you are a builder, remodeler, or contractor, this is your go-to resource for business growth strategies, as well as marketing and sales tactics. On this show, you'll hear from industry leaders, construction professionals in the trenches, and from our team of digital marketing experts here at Builder Funnel. If you're not growing, you're moving backward. So we want you to always be in growth mode let's get started. Hey, welcome to episode number 61 of Builder Funnel Radio. In this episode, I sit down with David Gerstel, and he has been dubbed the legend by several people within the industry, which I think is super cool. And he's very humble about it. But in this episode, we talk about a number of things. And we kind of talk about his story. And he's, you know, gone through building a construction business, he's written several books, And we actually navigate to a couple of really powerful topics that I'm very, very excited about. And one of those is the question is, is the construction industry a for-profit industry or is it actually a not-for-profit industry? So definitely tune in to hear his thoughts on that. And then we also make a segue into talking about preparing for a potential downturn, what you should be doing in terms of some investments. And I think this stuff is super fun. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Gerstel. Hey, David, glad to have you on the show today. That was good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to be talking to uh, the legend, as you've been dubbed, I guess, uh, by several people in the industry.
1: Time to time, unfortunately, maybe, but I'm not too <laughs> sure about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. My wife says, well, better a living legend than a dead one, so I, uh, <laughs> I ride with that. <laughs>
0: You know, I, that's a good way to look at it. But, uh, I, I think if, if multiple people have said that, then, uh, you know, you're doing some good things. Hopefully, Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm excited for today and I found it interesting that both of our early connections to construction were really with our great, great grandfathers actually. And, uh, I guess yours had a cabinet factory back in Berlin. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And was he my great-great or my great? I think he was my great-grandfather. Yeah. And okay. In the 19th century, he operated a small furniture factory. Well, I, I don't know whether it was small or big for its time. I really, I, lo- I wish I had images of it. I don't. But they built beautiful stuff. I've been fortunate to inherit three pieces built in his factory. That's really high-level craftsmanship. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work. That's I mean, awesome. That's 130 years old now and it performs perfectly.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So, is that what got you interested in construction or was it something else?
1: No, I think it was a sort of a, a winding road. I mean, I when I was a kid, I, I guess I did have a, an, an instinct to make things. I had what we used to call an electro set. Um, I built tree houses. I built what we called forts. I lived in a sort of semi-rural area on the edge of a small town, and we had access to the creeks and to the woodland, and we'd go down and build things, and I always liked that. I had a neighbor who built beautiful cedar chests, or what to my, you know, 12-year-old eye looked like beautiful cedar chests. (laughs) I like to hang out in his shop, and I enjoyed his sense of, I think I was uplifted by his sense of reverence for the wood that he was handling and, and the material and the process. But I was also an athlete and as I got into my teen years, I think athletics took the place of, of making things for quite a long time. But I, I, I played sports in college and, uh, and I loved that. And I realized as I approached graduation, I did not really want to go on in a uh, professional paper and pen kind of career. I was being pushed that way by some professors, but I said, thanks, but no. I want to learn to work with my hands. I guess what I was saying is I wanted to go back to this thing I loved in my childhood. I didn't really know where that might take me, but I got lucky. I ran into two, I can only call them brilliant carpenters. Uh, They sort of took me under their wing and they said, look, you want to learn a trade? Learn carpentry because uh, the carpenter runs the job and we know you. And you're not going to be a happy guy with someone else telling you what to do. So you better be the carpenter who eventually learns to run the job And I followed their advice, thank goodness. And, you know, went through the usual struggle to accomplish an apprenticeship and, excuse me, eventually arrive at journeyman status. Um, I worked, I was working my way through a really severe recession, actually. I, I didn't quite understand that. But my jobs would last a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month. And then I'd be laid off because the contractor ran out of work. I went through something like three dozen jobs during my carpentry apprenticeship. Wow! Then I ended up on a big union job framing a large apartment building, and that was—I got a year's employment out of that, and I learned how to frame very efficiently from those guys. Not well, because they were very sloppy, and I had to unlearn some of their sloppiness later (laughs) on. But I learned how to really, really frame efficiently, and that turned out to be a big advantage in my career as I sort of set out on my own as a general contractor. So that—that's a thumbnail story of how I got started as a builder.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you you actually figured it out pretty early on. You said, "I I don't want to go down this path. I'm going to go down another path." I feel like that takes people a lot longer typically to figure out what they want to do. Um, but
1: I just had a raw instinct, and I got lucky. I fell in with these carpenters. I mean, because um, I I could have. I mean, as far as I knew, working with your hands, making coffee mugs out of clay. You know, <laughs> these guys set me straight.
0: Uh, That's yeah. awesome. Well, and now if we fast forward you know you've been at this for 50 years you've written several books and uh i want to dig into that a little bit you know what got you interested in writing
1: <laughs> i wish i knew i don't know there there are some people who are afflicted with a love of assembling words into sentences and paragraphs and i'm one of those people i started writing really when i was about 14 i started corresponding with a friend i was living in Austria, going to school there. And I was writing letters back and forth with my buddy Jimmy. We were competing to see who could write the longest letters. And I just loved <laughs> writing those letters. And that, that led to my becoming editor of the high school newspaper and then the college newspaper. And I began to think, I want to be a writer too. So I, I um, again, I got lucky. I, I, was, I had a small construction company. I'd actually written my first book, which has nothing to do with construction. I'd published it. I was hanging out in a coffee shop dressed in Carhartt overalls and a Carhartt jacket, kind of like the one I have on this morning because it's cool here. And right across the the room from me is another guy dressed exactly like I am. We're obviously both carpenters. We're eyeing each other. We strike up a conversation. It turns out this guy is Chuck Miller, who was one of the founding editors of Fine Home Building. The magazine was just getting started. And he says we talk a while and he can tell I has, have some enthusiasm for the crafts and for building. And he says, you know, I've just started working for this new magazine called fine home building. And we're kind of looking for guys like you to write stories of their projects. And I said, don't worry, don't worry. You won't have to do the writing. You know, you kind of get some notes together and we'll help you edit it into article form, edit the notes into article form. And I said, Chuck, I'm a published writer, man. I've written a book. And he, his eyes lit up. A writer builder? Wow, I scored this morning. And pretty soon he'd signed me up to write several articles for Fine Home Building. Uh, I was a little embarrassed when they were about to be published because they were about organizing job sites. And I thought, this stuff is so obvious. Everybody knows this stuff. And they're going to say, well, "What? why do you bother to publish this? Well, it turned out not everybody knew this stuff or had any instinct to be well organized and articles got they got a pretty amazing response and of course that went right to my head and i decided well i'm the guy to write the book about how to run a construction company so i set out to write the book only to realize i didn't know beans about running a construction company so in a way writing that book was my you know training and how to become a general contractor fortunately i was a member of an amazing group here in the Bay Area called the Splinter Group. It was a peer-to-peer learning association of builders who just joined together voluntarily to coach each other. I, I wrote an article about them recently, by the way, for the Journal of Right Construction, should anybody be interested. It's called something like, Your Best Business Education Might Be Right Next Door. And in this group were some really accomplished builders, somewhat older than most of us, who did understand how to organize and run a construction company. And they became our mentors and from these guys and from hanging out with them, you know, once a month and talking through issues, I did learn how to put together a construction company and had a pretty darn good run actually, Yeah, real good. I was, I, there was another thing which I was, another way in which I was really lucky. I've just, you mentioned it, I've just published a book called Nail Your Numbers, A Path to Construction Estimating and Bidding, Skilled Construction Estimating and Bidding. In writing that book, on which I've spent about five or six years, I realized that even with, in building companies, which do pretty well, estimating and bidding is often the weakest part of their operation. They kind of put it together for themselves when they were starting out, didn't really know what they did, do, were doing, never really changed their system. And so they, even though they're strong companies in many ways, perhaps with very good marketing, um, they're weak at estimating and bidding. And I, Again, in that area, I got lucky. I, I acquired by chance... A mentor when I was very new in construction who was a superb estimator and bidder. Now, he worked for much larger companies than I had. I, was, I ran a compact, largely residential construction company. He worked for bigger companies that did medium-rise buildings, shopping malls. And he wrote two books about estimating and bidding. And I, I bought them and studied them. And he set me off in what I think is a good direction. In a way, my new book is, I suppose, an up, update of his books. Mm. In any case, I developed very strong skills there. And I pretty quickly got to the point, A, I knew what jobs to not go after. B, I knew what jobs to go after. C, I realized that you need to get paid for this work of estimating. And I started very early in my career charging for estimates when almost nobody was doing it. Now it's standard practice all around the country. And I also understood that you had how to put together a very strong estimating um, spreadsheet using Excel so that I didn't miss anything. And I I got to the point where on average, my estimates were dead on. I'd be off a little ways in one direction on one estimate, I'm sure a little off in the other direction, next estimate. But over the course of a year or two years, all these small errors would average out pretty close to zero. And I found, although I found that a lot of very experienced builders struggle, it, it, there are guys out there who regularly come within one percent. There's a very good article by a couple of guys, I think they're located There's somewhere in Texas who have put together a strong estimating system. They wrote wrote an article about it for fine home building. They miss by one percent. There's a builder in Boston, legendary builder named Elden Cramp, who also is dead on with his estimates. It's possible to build an estimating and bidding system that keeps you out of the wrong jobs, gets you into the right jobs. And allows you to nail your numbers for those jobs, but it's, it takes a lot of work to build that system.
0: It's- yeah, absolutely. So I think it's interesting. You've already said maybe three times that you got lucky at these different moments, and there's probably an element of luck or chance involved. But I feel like you're probably discounting a lot of your hard work, your preparation. That you know when when that opportunity struck, you were you were there.
1: <laughs> well, that, that, you know, Spencer, I. I have that ex- an exchange around that question quite often. I, I view that as a very kind and generous remark. That's a young man speaking. Um, I've come to think it's all luck. In fact, <laughs> if you know how to work hard, that's, that's luck also. You know, If you're able to um, think in a systematic manner and, and organize complex tasks, you're darn lucky to be able to do that. Um, in fact, sometimes I even think that my ability to do that to the extent I have one is is sort of a, a result of dysfunction, you know, a obsessive compulsiveness. <laughs> I mean, it's not only, it's 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 luck in the sense that, you know, some sort of a mental disorder turned out to be very helpful in the career I chose. And I think I think actually, I mean, to be, a, to be a, a successful as a builder, you do have to have a kind of a passion for organization. And and it sometimes in other walks of life might not prove very functional. It might be excessive.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, just to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail there on luck, you you said a lot of things come down to luck. If somebody feels like they don't have that innate organizational ability or, um, you know, drive to work really hard, you know, are, are they just stuck as being unlucky? Or what would you say to that?
1: No, they might be very lucky, but they're probably um, not. Not um, probably trying to become a general contractor is not. would not be a good decision. They, mm-hmm. they might. They might want to choose another path. Um, I know a guy that I really admire, a very easygoing guy who started out in the trades, and he realized, I don't want to drive this hard. Uh, he got a job running a working in a coffee shop now. He's an assistant manager. He's got re, you know regular, predictable hours makes an adequate living and gets to spend his free time reading poetry and playing rock and roll music. So, you know, he was lucky that he found the right path for himself and realized that he was on the wrong path, that my path was not the path he wanted to be on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, let's jump back to one thing that you were talking about in terms of uh, charging for work. And you said that's kind of become more of a standard practice, but I still see a lot of people saying free estimate on their website or, you know, whatever it is. So for those people listening that aren't charging for that, uh, you know, what would you say to them? Why should they be?
1: I wouldn't say they should be. Um, I would say that for a good many enterprises, free estimates might be appropriate. I know some guys who specializing in installing helical piers. Well, they do free estimates because they can do their estimates very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time they're called out to do an estimate, they're essentially making a sales call. Um, the, the estimate part of that sales call is a few minutes work for them. By going out to give the owner what the owner thinks of as a free estimate, they have an opportunity to show the owner why helical piers, those are, those are big corkscrew steel piers that you drive into the ground with a, a big hydraulic machine. Are a better choice in concrete piers, which the owner might be considering. Why they're cheaper and can go in faster, and so forth, and do less environmental damage. So, and I think um, other kinds of contracting enterprise, like perhaps um, window sales, free estimates, are also a good way to get yourself in to make a sales call. But in what I do, um, it's a real burden. Um, should I tell you the little story of how I got? started down the road of not of charging for estimates.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Uh, well I, I was a pretty young builder. I mean I I'd kind of s- just by sheer force of necessity I'd been I'd moved from being a journeyman carpenter to a general contractor because there was no work for carpenters. There was 98% unemployment or something like that down at the Union Hall. And by sheer good fortune a friend of mine asked me to, to build a couple of garages for him and help him remodel a little cottage he'd acquired. I loved, I loved that new role I was in, of you know, being my own boss. And that job for him led to other jobs, and it pretty quickly led to a chance to renovate um, a beautiful, beautiful Victorian in San Francisco that had been bought by a young couple when San Francisco was half slum. They bought this huge Victorian with two giant flats in it for 10 thousand (laughs) dollars it's worth six million now roughly so they managed to have some sort of rough sketches of their job drawn up and they're very eager to get going and we meet we really like each other and um they want me to build it but they feel we need an an estimate of cost i said sure i'll I'll put that together and i set out to, to do so and i suddenly realized this is 150 hours of work i mean these plans are are so sketchy, I'm going to be having to set down virtually every specification for the job and then generate costs for what's an enormously complicated job. And I call him up and said, you know, I hate to tell you this because I would like you guys and I love the project, but I, I can't do this. I mean, I can't stop working for 150 hours for a whole month, basically, to generate the estimate. And you know, I've got family to support and I need to be out there earning my part of our family income. And somehow we began to chat about this problem because they they wanted me to, to to build for them, to be their builder. We somehow, I'm not sure who suggested it initially, whether they suggested it or I suggested it or we had the idea simultaneously, but the idea was, why don't you charge us for the estimate? And I said, yeah, that would work. And instead of charging my usual 13 an hour, I'll just charge 11 or 12 or whatever it was You know, I'm working off memory here, because I'll be able to put in more hours estimating, I'm sure, than I can building, because I'll, you know, it's not as demanding physically, and I'll get the estimate done, and you'll pay me, and, and they did that. And after that, it just came to me that this is serious professional work, generating an estimate for the kind of work I do, which is, you know, tends to be pretty complicated residential projects. I mean, sometimes just a kitchen, but kitchens are extremely complicated. Sometimes a small addition, sometimes a second story addition, sometimes a new house, sometimes the complete reconstruction of a, uh, you know, an old house is basically falling apart. Generating an estimate for that kind of work is serious professional work because it doesn't, it involves several things. It's not just cranking out numbers. It involves refining the specifications because the specifications and the plans are always incomplete. And most importantly, it can involve value engineering, coming up with ideas that enable the designer and the owner to achieve their dream for the budget they have available. Because very often designs incorporate um, suggestions of construction, which is unnecessarily expensive. One quick example, uh, I've got another book called Crafting the Considerate House. It's the story of building a little house in a working class community not far from my, my office. Um, I got a soils engineer out to the site, and he did his test, and he was going to specify your typical uh, spread footing, you know, T T T foundation, which in the case of this lot would have had to have been been installed in a trench about five to six feet deep because of the poor soil conditions. And I said, out of the question. Um, I want to go pier and grade beam. I cannot afford. I, if, if I we're not able to build this project, it'll bust the budget if I can go pier and grade beam, I can work. And he was startled. He said, pier and grade beam for a flat lot? I said, yeah, I know it's not done much, but I've done it before. And that's what I want your soils report to suggest as as the optimal solution. And if it doesn't, you're not getting paid because I know it can be done. He said, no problem, Dave. We're gonna get get the soils. It's a good idea, in fact. He said, why not? And he came up with a soils report, which specified 16-foot deep piers on eight-foot centers. And I built the foundation according to his recommendation and saved 90% of the excavation and 50 to 60% of the concrete and steel that would have been needed for the spread footing foundation. And goodness knows how much labor and and how much off hauling, Um, but probably reduced the cost of foundation by roughly 60% from what he was initially thinking of. So builders can can provide that kind of input, value engineering at every step of a project and save owners huge amounts of money, far more than what they likely will be charging to generate the value engineering, the specifications, and the numbers. And they need to be paid for that. I, after I began to develop this process, and I was still pretty, pretty much an unknown, I hadn't written my book or even my articles, I gave a talk called Beyond Competitive Bidding, I think, or Beyond Bidding for Free, whatever was the title of the talk, at a, at a local builder's bookstore. And 250 guys came because people wow. were eager to get out of bidding for free. It was such a burden. You know? You'd know. you submit like six bids, each of which took 50 or more hours. That's 300 hours of work, and you wouldn't get any of the jobs. It was terrible. So the guys were excited about this idea. And the guys who turned up, a lot of them are very, very capable guys. They got a lot more wattage than I do. They built quite remarkable companies, some of them. They took this idea to, Each of them refined it to suit his own needs. Many of them called it uh, pre-construction services. I call it cost planning. Other people call it negotiated bidding. The idea took root. And uh, it's spread all across the country now. And interestingly, the AIA, now that's American Institute of Architects, the world's most evil organization you know from the point of view of builders <laughs> not really but we do have our differences builders and architects um, they, they they got wind into the idea and they've developed their own version they don't really they, they actually realized where it came from they realized the idea was generated and developed by this group of of um, um, younger builders who are working in the Bay Area doing largely res- residences the AIA got a hold of it and developed, what they call a Proposal for Integrated Project Delivery, IPD, and they published a manual about it. It's the worst written document I have ever seen. It's almost unintelligible. Um, But it basically proposes this, that you abandon the traditional model, which is the model where architects produce an elaborate set of plans, the owner pays through the nose for them, only to find out that he can't afford to build a project, Um, and the plans go in a drawer. Or they get a contractor who's not quite qualified to do the project, and then things really go to heck in a handbasket fast once construction begins. There's a lot of drawbacks to that traditional model where the plans are completed, free bids are solicited. One thing, very often, the owner ends up in a change order battle with a builder all the way through the um, project. It gets beat to death because the builder's holding all the cards at that point. So the AIA began to recognize this is, a bad, this is a bad process. Let's change the model to what they call, as I was saying, the IPD model, integrated project delivery. Let's team up with an owner and let's get the builder in immediately to work in a collaborative relationship with us with the understanding that he's going to be the actual builder, but that he has to help us in return for that opportunity and for the pay, his pay, of course, during the pre-construction process. Help us, he's got to help us Get the project to the point we can build it for the budget available. So now this process, you know, this what I call cost planning, what the AIA calls integrated project delivery, is used very widely. There are there are still a lot of builders, I'm sure, who are doing um, free bidding for the kinds of projects that I I do and have done. Um, Yeah, I think there are.
0: Yeah, they
1: can work their way past that, but it takes work. You've got to build a really strong estimating and bidding system. I think, I think this is a bit of an advertisement I'm about to deliver here, and I apologize for it, but I think with the help of my book, which is a, is a beast, as one reviewer called it, it's 300 pages. But I think with the help of that book, if you're willing to put in 300 hours, you can build a strong bidding and estimating system that will carry, help you carry your career to greater heights over the course of whatever you've got left, 30, 40 years. Um, the guy who's reviewing the book says the book's a beast, it is. I mean, is, yes, yeah. maybe are demanding. This is not something you're gonna pick up on a weekend or that you're gonna accomplish by getting some little cheapo software package off the internet and, and let it and try, in the hopes that it'll do the work for you. It won't happen. You've got to develop serious skills. Understand that really good estimators working for big construction companies are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Those skills are valuable. And those skills aren't something you drag out of your hip pocket on a whim. You got to, you got to work to develop them. Okay. Yeah.
0: Hey guys, just a quick announcement before we get to the rest of today's episode, we've been getting a ton of feedback on our done for you social media program. Now, if social media has been a frustration of yours or you feel like you're not posting enough, this is the perfect solution for you. And as a listener of the podcast, we've got a special promotion going on right now. So just head over to remodelersocialmedia.com and use the code RADIO at the checkout. So if you want to get more engagement and more people finding you on platforms like Facebook and Instagram, hit pause really quick and check out com and use the code RADIO at checkout. All right, back to the show. No, that's a good point. <laughs> well, and speaking of the book, I want to jump into, there's an essay. I think it's on page 278. Uh, if anybody's going to pick up a copy, but you actually talk about this industry being a not-for-profit industry. So what do you mean by that? Um, here's what I
1: mean. <laughs> uh, yeah. Page 278: Construction: a not-for-profit business question mark. So' it's kind of it's a thought that came to me as I was writing this book, and I began to see various reports on the success levels of construction companies. A couple of things that were particularly striking are as follows. During the the Great Recession, as it's called, the past recession, which young builders aren't aware of to their peril. They've been building in what's now an 11-year boom period. They don't really understand what recessions can do to them. We're trying to warn them, but they're not really hearing it. Um, A lot of guys are going to get beat up really bad when the next recession strikes, because they're not ready for. They haven't built and designed a company which can handle a recession, but in the last recession, 60%, six out of 10 construction companies, somewhere between 50 and 60%, I should say, went out of business. Now, imagine that all the construction companies in America were on one street. What that, what that failure rate means is that every other building on that main street of businesses would be boarded up. That's how severe the damage was. And a lot of the guys who stayed in business ended up way behind the eight ball and barely survived. I I have a friend, for example, who built a company with 40 employees, has a tremendous reputation, does great work. He ended up having to mortgage his home to keep his business going. Another guy did the same thing, took out a million dollars mortgage on his home and his company went bust anyhow. So he ended up working as a carpenter for 30 bucks an hour with his million dollar debt hanging over. That's so. There's one factoid. Now, here's a real striking one. Um, there was a, a group that I won't name because I kind of like the guy who started it, who brought builders into one of these peer-to-peer learning situations. Um, now his pitch to guys when he was trying to recruit them for his groups for membership in which was charged. In other words, you joined one of his groups to pay him five, six, eight thousand bucks a year, something like that, and he involved you in these groups and in a study program and supposedly um, the result would be that it would build a stronger business. And the group was beneficial to guys. I mean, I know guys who joined this group who were struggling to run a construction company and who eventually learned with this guy's help, maybe a little help from one of my books as well, to run a construction company successfully. However, when this guy pitched membership in his groups, what he pitched was 10% for overhead, 10% for profit, and 10% for owner's salary. Then he did a survey of his companies to see how they were actually doing. Um, and somehow, by mistake, because it was bad, it was counter-advertising, he let this report slip out of his hands and into mine, <laughs> and, and, and also become available to a lot of other people. I don't know. They studied it as much as I did. But what the report showed you was the actual profit margin for his companies wasn't 10%. It was about... 4%. And that was across a good, a period of, of strong economy. Wow. And, it, and, and very importantly, that 4% did not include the builders who'd failed and who dropped out of his program. That's kind of like reporting the results of a war without counting up the dead. That's what he right. was. And finally, a recession hit and his group collapsed completely, he told me, I think he must have misspoken, but virtually everybody in the group went out of business. His report indicated that his his members of his group were not averaging 10% in profit, they were averaging 4%. And that was in a boom period. And furthermore, it did not include the guys who had been in his group who had nevertheless failed. And as I was saying, that was like counting up the results of a war without counting the dead. And so it goes, um, I, as I, I got intrigued by this information, I began to think, is construction in, in ag, over, overall in aggregate, not for every company, a not-for-profit industry? Warren Buffett kind of got me started on this thought. He says the airline industry is a not-for-profit industry. If you total up the net earnings and losses for all the airline companies over the course of history, you'll find that, uh, that you get a big net loss. Similarly, perhaps for construction, and the final nail in the coffin for me when I was generating this thought was a conversation I had with a uh, a builder friend, and I said, you know, I'm beginning to think construction is a not-for-profit industry, and he said, yeah, the only guys who can make real money in this are the really big operators. And I said, yeah, maybe that's right. So I said, I went to the I went to the web and I dug up the financial reports for some of the biggest builders in the country. Particularly Pulte, and I looked at their financial reports going back over twenty years, covering a boom period and a bust period. There, guess what their average annual profit was for that period? It was four percent. Huh? Four percent, like the other group? Close. <laughs> it was. Gosh, I don't have the it's the figure. The figure is somewhere in this in this little story I tell here, but I'm I'm not seeing it at a glance in my book. So I'll just. Go to memory and say it was it was one percent or less. I think it was a few tenths of a percent. Wow, percent. Um, now, of course, the owners, quote unquote. Well, the managers, not the owners. The owners are the investors. It's a, investing in a publicly owned construction company is probably a very bad investment over over time. But people do it anyhow. But over time, I wouldn't think it would be a, a good investment. But uh, excuse me, here are my eyes itching a little bit. Got it. Um, the the um, you know, the guys who run the company are probably bringing down big salaries. And it could be that an owner of a company who, that makes over time very little profit because it has its bad years and its good years and maybe barely survives, the owner may nevertheless be taking home pretty good pay for himself. But that's different than profit. That's pay for the work he does every day. And he could be making that payer more in another job if he's a competent executive. I, I, I brought this idea of this question. <clears throat> Is construction a not-for-profit business? I brought it up in a, in a, at a meeting of builders where I was giving a little keynote address to kick off their annual program. And I, I brought it up as a serious subject. And they all broke out into laughter and <laughs> howling with laughter. They knew exactly what I meant. These are a bunch of very experienced, savvy guys who managed to stay alive in the industry but knew how hard it was to actually make a profit, meaning money above and beyond what covers your overhead, and pays you hopefully a a reasonably good salary for the very hard work you do, so.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I don't think people probably take a step back and look at it as an industry that way, because obviously individual companies will have their own experience. Um, But I'm kind of curious, can we do anything about that? Or if we're in the industry, do we just kind of have to accept that and try to be the top performers?
1: Um, I'm very well. uh, First of all, I'm leery of that term top performer. I mean, I don't mean to be rude and sully for using the term by any means, but I think too often, uh, and you may not mean this, it gets equated with growing top line revenue. I mean, I've been in builders' groups and I know what happens in boom periods when you got a bunch of young, much you know, guys around there with you know lots of juice flowing through them and and a lot of competitive spirit. Um, they're down there boasting about their gross volumes and and uh, claiming bragging rights for having the largest annual revenues. Um, and I've certainly been there myself. I I did that for a short period. I got involved in that, and it was the biggest mistake I ever made. I barely survived that mistake. Uh, I barely survived it psychologically, much less financially. <laughs> I got lucky again. I got through it. But um, I think what you, I th- people often say, you know, you've got to, if you're not growing, you're, you're dying. I, I mean, I have no idea what that means. But to the extent there's meaning in it, to me, what it would suggest is that you need to grow strength. You need to grow strength. Not just volume, but strength. And what strength means in a construction company is very frugal use of overhead frugal does not mean stingy. It means careful use of resources Control your overhead relentlessly. I'm not the only guy who thinks that Warren Buffett preaches that all the time And he's done pretty well in business as you probably noticed. Yeah, he's done. All right. Yeah <laughs> even, even bill gates. I mean these guys are f- careful about how they Allocate their resources. They want to make sure they're getting bang for their buck um, So you. Don't you know? I see guys getting big fancy trucks with their big fancy signs on the side, and what is that? Is that investment bringing them anything but bragging rights? Is it bringing return on the dollar? I seriously doubt it. I've seen construction companies who have lavish offices and big warehouses or you know tool tool um, shops, which are essentially empty and not being used again. Why is that there? Is it for bragging rights? Because you somehow want to be a presence and be noticed? I suspect so. Um, that's not a good use of resources. I think, well, for myself, what has proved to be a good approach and, and, and is perhaps an approach that is useful for, for other people is this rigorously control overhead. I ran my company, on about on an overhead of about 1.5% of gross revenues. Um, I've been told by someone who does bookkeeping or actually financial strategic development for construction companies all around the country that she was stunned when she saw that figure. She thought the lowest you could go was 8%. I think 8% is extravagant. I don't see any need for that. And you don't need a big fancy office. You can run a construction company out of a 50 square foot office with a, with a computer and everybody who works for you as as office people working in their homes with their computer in a corner of their spare space. You don't need a big glamorous office on Main Street, you know, broadcasting your name to the community. You can get your name out there by other means. I mean, I'm not gonna get into a whole litany of detail about how to control overhead, that's a huge subject, but the general principle is keep your overhead down, build up very substantial capital reserves, They will get you through hard times if you need to draw on them. And then last ingredient, do not invest in in your own company because construction businesses are lousy, inherently lousy businesses, financially speaking. Invest in better kinds of businesses. And the best way I know to do that is simply invest in um, index funds, uh, a mutual fund that has a uh, very low overhead, an index fund has a very low overhead, very low fees to you for management um, that invest in a broad spectrum of industries. Make that investment inside your iRAs, make it outside your iRAs i can i don't know if this is the i'm not going to suggest i've got the answer. I can tell you this worked very well for me and has worked very, very well for other people I know who would you know learned about my path and decided it fitted them. I was financially independent at a modest level when I was in my mid-30s, um, early mid-30s, I started, starting from a dead standstill, um, simply by applying frugality, working hard, and re- restricting overhead, taking the money I was making and putting it into investments outside my company, or rental properties, um, index funds. And now, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just I'm in a position that I, mean, I didn't even understand was possible financially. Um, I'm completely free to do whatever I want. Um, If I want to build a project, I can do it just for the sheer satisfaction of it. I don't have to even think about whether I'm going to make money from it or not. I do think about that because I'm a business person and I'm ingrained um, in the thinking of a business person. And I'm telling you, it's wonderful. It beats the heck out of having a big, elaborate construction company that suddenly hits a recession and just explodes on you and then burdens you with hard. Really try to keep it together, which was exactly the experience of friends who run high overhead companies. So there you are. Is that in the direction of what you're
0: hoping Yeah, to do? I think it's really important to think about those things. I mean, and sometimes take a step back and look at our business or the entire environment that we're sitting in. And especially, as you said, we're 11 years into this bull run. I think people need to be thinking about building cash reserves and looking at overhead and trimming that because it tends to inflate as revenue goes up, like you said.
1: And getting rid of debt. I mean, I, don't, I never could fathom why a builder would be proud to have a uh, debt to a bank or, to, or even have a line of credit. Why are you proud of having a line of credit? You should be proud of having a company which has the capital reserves to fund itself. Instead of having to go out and beg some bank to give you money um, to to get you through a rough spot because you didn't prepare for it properly, I just never comprehended that.
0: I never had credit. And do you have a certain runway that you think people should have in cash reserves? Is it six months, 12 months more? Um, I think, you know, if you can get there,
1: it would be wise to have enough money to uh, cover your personal living expenses for a year and also to have a capital reserve account in your company around 10% of gross revenue of your, of your, of your peak years. Sure. Um, I, it's a kind of an arbitrary figure. I mean, I don't know how to get to just the right figure. Yeah. I've been told by several builders that they learned this 10% suggestion from reading my book on running construction companies and thought, well, that sounds about right to me. And it proved out for them. And those builders range from uh, some very small operations, you know, a guy with basically a couple of small crews who does two small residential jobs at a time to a guy who builds uh, $20 million estate homes and, and uh, you know, probably has gross revenues of, I think he's probably about $40 million a year now, 40 to $60 million a year. But, I mean, he actually thinks in that case, if he's doing $40 million, he needs $4 million bucks in the bank. For yeah. the last recession, he was a, before the last recession, he was at about roughly 10 million and he had a million bucks in capital reserves. He hit the recession. He went through all of it.
0: Wow. Yeah. So that number held true and, and worked out. In case. Yeah. Yeah. There's
1: probably other cases where it didn't hold true, but I just don't happen to hear about that. Sure. Yeah.
0: Well, Dave, I feel like we barely scratched the surface today on... Uh, Uh, numerous topics and uh, we might have to get back and do another one of these, but I've got a last section of questions for us. But before we get to that, you know, how can people find out more about you or pick up the book?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. Um, My books are available on Amazon. That's the easiest way to get them. If you're not a big Amazon fan, there's a wonderful bookstore in Berkeley called the Builder's Bookstore, source, which also sells books, um we'll, we'll, we'll fill a mail order for, for a book um, amazon's gonna be cheaper sure
0: perfect well we'll make sure to link up uh, to the to the amazon links and uh make it easy for everybody in the oh, show notes Very nice. um so last segment of the show is called our fast five and i'm gonna kind of rapid fire some questions at you and uh we'll see how it goes
1: I'll try. As you've noticed, I'm not real good at short answers, but
0: (laughs) we'll we'll try on this one. All right. (laughs) Uh, So what is your favorite business book and why? The Intelligent Investor. It was written by a guy named
1: Ben Graham, who was Warren Buffett's mentor. Need I say more?
0: (laughs) Yeah, enough said. Yeah. And that's a a fantastic one. I know when you and I connected, you recommended that to me as well. And uh, yeah, it's a good one. So we'll link that up for everybody as well. That's a Um, tough read. What's that?
1: That's a tough read. (laughs) Yeah. You've got a business education, an investment education.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. All right. So who is the most inspirational person in your life? My wife. Awesome.
1: She has... um, Great judgment, dignity, generosity. so wonderful person.
0: Yeah, very cool.
1: Another stroke of luck was her asking me out to dinner because I never would have had the courage to ask her out. She was too beautiful. <laughs> Way out of my, ball, my league, I thought. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, so you got lucky again, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So if you could have one superpower, what would that be?
1: Oh, that's easy, man. Hit 140 mile an hour serves instead of my <laughs> usual 82 miles an hour or whatever I achieve.
0: <laughs> That's a good one. I like it. Um, all right. Describe yourself in three words.
1: When I'm behaving properly, um, candid, striving, I can't do it in three words. I mean, okay, let me try it this way. My watchwords, the things I try to be are patient. Um, Um, Manifesting integrity, that's what I aim for. I don't know how much I succeed in getting there, but I try.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, and it's good that uh, you have those things that you're aiming for all the time, and they're top of mind. All right, last question. If you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice, what would that be? Manage overhead
1: astutely, build capital reserves, understand history is rough, and it's going to clobber you with some serious downtimes, and they are coming.
0: I think that's good advice, and and very timely too. We may be close to some tough times.
1: I'm glad to hear someone in your generation saying that it is coming. I mean, this is probably beyond what you want to include in the program, but um, I think this will interest you, Spencer. I I, um, I have a friend who runs a uh, financial advisory service. They have about six offices around the country, and and he recently sent me a newsletter. In which he cited some studies, one of debt levels in the developed countries, they are staggering. Um, there's a study that suggests national debt should not exceed 90% of gross domestic product. And if you go, you go over that line, you're in trouble. The Eurozone, the debt level is 450%. In the US, it, if you include unfunded Social Security and Medicare obligation, it's 1,000%. And in, oh my gosh. and in Ireland and Scotland and one country after the other, it's 300%, 400%, 500%. Debt bubbles like that collapse. And when they do, and you, I mean, you're a student of business, you understand this better than I do. That really, seeing those figures really shook me.
0: That's, yeah, we, that's we, an eye opener.
1: We yeah. could be in for a recession that was worse than last one, it's possible. I, I didn't think it could happen twice in my lifetime, but. more than twice. It actually has happened twice. It happened in the early 70s when I was just starting out. And it just happened, of course, during the Great Recession. Can we get a third recession of that intensity? I hope not. It's awful rough on people.
0: Yeah. I'm generally an optimist, but I also like to be prepared. And I've always heard that business cycles are seven to 10 years, and we're just past that. So it just makes you think we're close. And there's
1: storm clouds. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Dave, I, I appreciate the conversation today. I feel like we covered some really important topics uh, that we kind of jumped out to, and uh, I think hopefully this was good for everybody to kind of take a step back and think about the future. And I appreciate you having you know the time to to come on the show. Well,
1: I appreciate the chance to uh, put my thoughts together, <laughs> and I do that. So, thank you very much, Spencer.
0: Hey, I hope you really enjoyed that conversation I just had with Dave and this topic and some of the things that we got to at the end really fire me up. I'm kind of a personal finance nerd. I really enjoy thinking about investing and saving and how to turn a lot of that hard work that we as business owners put in into more time freedom for us down the road. Um, because it often, the scales are tipped one way for a long time, you put in lots of hours, you have a lot of responsibility, a lot of risk, and there should be a payoff for that. But if you don't take certain steps, you may never get to that payoff in what you're trying to achieve. So um, action item number one that I pulled out of today's episode was let's look at overhead and see where we can trim. And I think this is a good exercise for all of us and, and not just to do once, but to do ongoing. Um, so let's look at our overhead expenses and see, are there places we can trim? Are there places we can cut? Are there anything any, anything in there that we're spending that maybe is ego-based, like Dave talked about, that we could cut back? Again, we're in some good, strong economic times right now. So let's maximize those to improve our profit. Uh, and that's really action item number two, is if you haven't started building up your cash reserves, I really encourage you to start working on that. And if you have, continue to do that and try to to hit that goal number. You know, Dave talked about maybe 10% of uh, total revenue plus Uh, you know, six to 12 months. I think you said 12 months of uh, personal expenses as well. So you've got your personal side and then you've also got your business cash reserves. And so um, pick your target, whatever that is, and and start working towards that. And then once you've got that, then you've got anything above that you can start investing in and working to increase your your time flexibility uh, down the road. So again, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I love this kind of stuff. I got a lot out of it personally. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Builder Funnel Radio. I know there are a lot of podcast choices out there. So it really means a lot to me that you choose this as one you either subscribe or listen to regularly. Now, before we part ways for today, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you got some value out of today's episode, please either leave us a review or share this with a friend. We're really working on building a community of construction professionals They want to treat their customers right. They want to run profitable businesses and create more jobs in our economy. So leaving a review or sharing it with a friend really helps us build that community and we'd really, really appreciate it. All right, guys, that's all I've got for today. So we'll see you next time on Builder Funnel Radio.